0: hello folks welcome back i'm your host simon ward and this is the high performance human triathlon podcast as i get older i become passionate about finding the best ways to refresh the mind refuel the body and rebuild strength so that i can keep doing what i love into my 60s and 70s if you have similar goals to me then i hope you'll join me each week as i bring you amazing guests from around the world All with the goal of helping you to improve your sporting performance regardless of whether you're a triathlete, an ocean swimmer, ultra runner or gravel racer. This week I'm joined by Andy Blow from Precision Fuel and Hydration. Andy's been on the show a couple of times before so this time we thought we would try something different. In the last few months the company have developed and launched some new carbohydrate based products to sit alongside the established hydration range. We thought it'd be interesting to take a look behind the scenes and talk about all of the work that goes into developing, manufacturing, launching and delivering new nutrition products to you, the customer. As you'll hear, it's not quite as simple as mixing some ingredients together in your kitchen, at least not all of the time. So rather than spoil the surprise, let's hear from Andy and he can tell us what really happens. Welcome back to the show, Andy Blow from Precision Fuel and Hydration. Good to see you, Simon. As ever. Now, it's been a while since you were on, and what I can tell how long it is because your hair's grown by the equivalent amount of time
1: that we haven't spoken. Yeah, yeah. It's still saving money. Still not going to the hairdressers. So, yeah, I'll be, I'll be rich in a couple of years' time.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you can turn the, if you can turn the heating off in your house as well, you might be. But I should think probably with the gas bills going up, you're just spending all the money that you saved on haircuts, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: heating he, the front room, and cooking your yeah, dinner. And some, yeah. When I filled my van up at the petrol station the other day, it was a pretty shocking experience, actually. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. You have yeah, to get that,
1: bike.
0: you have to get that gravel bike out and start riding yeah. to work.
1: Yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, we're not here to talk about the, the economy or anything like that, although I'm maybe at some point in the future, you and I will have more of a bearing on it. You've been in the news a bit recently, haven't you? Not you specifically, but precision fuel and hydration. You're, uh, you're making waves and, um, in, in a big way
1: yeah we um as you know we partnered with the professional uh triathletes organization the pto to mm. become a partner of their their tour series of events this year which is a you know a big leap for a small you know um growing british company to do that on a global stage and so we're really ex- you know genuinely really excited the level of of sort of stoke in the office has been high lately with lots of you know press releases and announcements going out.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure you can't and don't want to go into uh, specifics about how that arrangement works, but I'm always interested in um those sort of the two-way deal on those sponsorship things because obviously you you get a lot of benefit from being associated with PTO and their events and they get somebody providing them with their nutrition on the course but can you can you go into a little can you share what you can about how how that might work at any event um with with a nutrition company sponsoring or being a partner in in that yeah
1: yeah definitely it's, it's always a little bit different depending on what type of different event it is and i think some of it really does come down to that kind of that age-old question of who's who's getting what from the deal you know mm. Like you say, every event these days, if you turned up at a long distance triathlon, for example, and they weren't providing branded sports nutrition products on the course, then you would probably be disappointed as a customer, you know, Mm -hmm. as an athlete racing in that race. And if that's a race with thousands of people in it, there is a significant, even at cost, there is a significant cost to someone providing that product. Mm. So hence the kind of sponsorship arrangements tend to be struck with companies that can provide that kind of thing now when it gets interesting then is like well do does the race then pay a subsidized rate for that product do they accept the product as value in kind for you being a visible partner of the race or do you have to go one step further as a sports sports nutrition brand and pay the event organizer for the exposure that comes with it and yeah. i think every deal is done on its on its own merits but we've certainly done a, a really you know what what we're really happy with i think the PTR are really happy with is like a, a an equitable deal on that because i think they've recognized that we aren't one of the bigger brands in the world but what we can bring in terms of our knowledge and expertise to help educate their participants and audience about the you know, proper fueling and hydration as well as providing really high quality products for the races
0: mm-hmm. it kind of
1: feels like it was a it was a good match we we had some great meetings with Sam Renoff, the CEO, and, the, and his team, Lucy, the Partnerships Manager, and other people over the over the months preceding signing up. And yeah, we're we're like extremely excited now to to see what kind of mm-hmm. yeah what kind of um, relationship that grows into over the next few years.
0: Yeah, he's he's a good lad, isn't he, Sam? He's come a long way. I remember Sam when he was seventeen posting. On um, well, whatever the forum was then, Tri Talk or something, way before Facebook, about how to what do I have to do to become a professional triathlete? And getting bombarded with advice. And uh, here yeah. he is now, being head of the Professional Triathletes Organisation.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's a very, very dynamic guy, and you know, has helped—you know—been a big part of getting the, you know, every all the success that we're seeing with the PTO at the moment.
0: Sponsorship has got to be a two-way thing, hasn't it? You know, if you if you feel like you're getting shortchanged and and um, stitched up, you're not going to stay around for very long. But equally, um, the uh, events and organisations you're associated with have got to feel like they're getting some sort of value for money out of it. So I guess from every everybody's got to make the whole thing work. That's that's the point, isn't it? You know,
1: it it is. It's sort of signing the deal is not the end of the process. it is very much the beginning. It's it's kind of like signing up to do an Ironman isn't the end of the process you know that's when you start the training you got put in the the, you got put in the hard yard so our entire team especially the marketing team like Dave and Chris who Mm. are marketing department but every aspect of the team the logistics side of things getting product to races everyone's kind of swung into gear and now it's really a case of us doubling down on the opportunity that that we've created with the PTO to have access to, to their athletes, their audience, to hopefully bring some stuff. You know, we've, we've already made a start. We're talking on what does it it's a Tuesday today. It's a couple of days after Oceanside 70.3 race where a lot of PTO um, ranked athletes of rate a racing the team here at precision fuel and hydration are conducting interviews with a number of those athletes after the race to find out what they ate and drank during the race mm-hmm. so that we can break their numbers down we can create case studies which then create educational content social media content which those athletes us, and the pto can all share to sort of raise a bit of awareness of like what do you need to eat and drink through in that case a half ironman distance race to perform at the sharp end
0: when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that's what I was struck by the education part, because often you sign up for a race and then you get your blurb about who the sponsors are, who the partners are. This will be the available there. And you can get some of this. And then you think, well, where do I get that product? I mean, if you if you participate in an Ironman race, it's in Europe, sometimes the product that they've got on the course there. Isn't available in the UK, so you have to get it sent over. You have to try and find somewhere where it's available from, and um that makes it hard. And even then, when you've got that, how do you know what quantities of what to use, what the tastes like? Yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, it's it's sort of fairly hit and miss. So I do I do like the idea that you you're not just going to be providing the product, but you're actually trying to. Seek to educate the people who are going to use it and give them some information, not just about your product, but about how to cater for their fueling requirements on different distances or races. Because I think that's woefully inadequate. And I think you and I talked about this the other week that the majority of triathlon coaches will have some knowledge, but they're not really super clued up on on the things, that you, the numbers as you as you refer to them.
1: Yeah, they're kind of, we talk about these numbers, you know, like we, if, if you're talking in, I suppose, business parlance, they'd be the KPIs for your mm-hmm. nutrition, for what you intake during a race. And that's the, the the amount of fluid, the amount of electrolytes and the amount of carbs. And we we try and break that down and simplify it for people. And the opportunity with, say, doing something big with the PTO, you'll, you'll have seen the kind of press release that we put out where the tagline that we've gone with is, is this, like, it's a play on the, the endurance cliche of death before dnf where people obviously say that they'll do anything to finish a race well we've not sort. we've sort of said you know it's going to be death to dnf because a lot of dnfs are are through getting gi upset or getting fueling and hydration wrong Mm. Our, our our genuine mission as a business first and foremost is to help athletes avoid that and optimize their performance by getting their their fueling and nutrition right And the key to that is not to just shovel in whatever XYZ magic product. It's to have an an actual in-depth understanding of what you need to take and then, you know, putting a plan in place to do that. So that's where that educational component comes in. So with the PTO, for example, we're setting up free video calls for the athletes that are entering the races. So if they want to talk to the team about their fueling and hydration plan, your point about availability of product is really important. One of the reasons I think the PTO were happy and keen to work with us is, is although we're a small business, we're a global business, you know, we have distribution in in Canada and in America and um, in the UK and Europe, where all of their races are. We actually have good distribution down in Australia as well. So as baked in as part of the process. If someone enters a PTO event, they do have the opportunity to stick a a sample pack of our products in their cart or to order them locally. So they can genuinely train on them a little bit beforehand. But again, it's not just, it's not it. Of course, people who understand the commercials will realize that's a good opportunity to sell products to athletes, but it's, it's, it's deeper than that because we would always say have nothing new on race day and try these things out in advance. Mm -hmm. So, we're trying to create the ideal environment for people to actually be able to to do that and do it with a bit of education behind it rather than just chuck a load of X, Y, Z energy bars and gels at them and say, get on with it.
0: Yes, I can can remember back to my first Ironman, 1995. So it's a long time ago now, but it was exactly that. You know, you read somewhere that, that somebody said 60 grams per hour. So you think, right, I've got all of these power bars and it says they've got x number of carbs put in there so that's right so i need to have eight of these in the bike ride if i'm going to be on the course and and then i need to have i need to have some fluid as well so maybe i can do that and then i'm gonna oh i need to get some salts in as well so i can mix that in but my stomach must be like a witch's cauldron bubbling away (laughs) throughout the bike ride because as soon as i got on the run i just felt so bloated and full and i just wanted to throw up in the nearest hedge which actually i did a few minutes later but that happened on that happened on at least fifty percent of my races, and it was really just because at that point in time I didn't really know about my numbers. I'd, I was trying to put it together from a lot of noise really out there, and um, <laughs> weren't very successful at it. I did get it right once, and then of course I felt like I'd hit on the right formula so I tried it again at the next race which was um one was in the UK nice and temperate good racing conditions the next one was in Lanzarote back to throwing up and having a bubbly stomach
1: yeah it's it's it is a bit of it it, it's an art as much as it is a science and Mm. we we strongly advocate athletes to um sort of iterate their way to success when it comes to hydration and nutrition and part of that process is quite painstaking but what the team are doing here collecting numbers from athletes in races analyzing them and then comparing that to performances that it it allows you to build on and iterate from good experiences to better experiences or away from bad experiences towards improved Mm -hmm. experiences so there's I i just don't think that even these days it's got better than it used to be, but you know, the, the gap between coaching for coaching is still seen very much so as like setting someone a program. Really. I know that you are, you know, uh, you, your coaching is a lot more holistic than that in terms of lifestyle, but, but then there's still a gap for me with most coaches between where the training plan ends and the nutrition planning starts. And sometimes that's through lack of qualification or lack of, experience and and it's certainly i suppose better not to it's better to stay in your lane and and not sort of just advise where you're not qualified to do so and that's for example why we as a as a company don't get go outside of the, the lane of like fueling and hydration very specifically during exercise nutrition of course is like a vast topic where you do need to be a dietitian or a qualified nutritionist in order to, to even get started on advising people on what they should eat day to day. But that kind of exercising window is, is pretty unique and and I would love to see actually more coaches and athletes upskilling themselves a little bit Mm -hmm. in, in the basics. But of course that's where we're trying to fill a gap and trying to provide resources for people so that they can start to figure out what, what works for them, what's important for them so they can get it right on race day.
0: I totally agree about staying in your lane. I think one of the things that we teach on the high-performance, high-performing coaches program at British Triathlon is to understand where your limits are. But also, if you want to operate at a high level, and I don't mean dealing with elite athletes, I mean at a high level of, of consciousness in terms of working with an individual, you have to build a network. You know, I've known you since long before you were doing sports nutrition when you were doing your Porsche performance center at Silverstone and you were you were coaching athletes and working on that performance aspect of of racing drivers and you know um, so and and from you I you know before you I knew Bernie so yeah. and that's and, and you're just a small part of my network and I always pride myself on the fact that if somebody wants to to find an expert I reckon I can get to them within two emails or two phone calls anywhere in the world and that's just because it's I, you know, like you, I I pride myself on building a network, and making friends with people, and finding out what they do, and finding people alike. And I think that's that's also part of the art of good coaching is building that network, knowing who you can refer to people to, so you don't have to be an expert in these things because you can't be an expert in everything.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that completely because yeah, like you say, you we we have a network of experts. For example, that we so we've got medical experts and nutritionists that we as a team our team is probably more focused uh, or more experienced should i say in sports science and physiology and that as it relates to fueling and hydration rather than nutrition in total so if we start to come up against food intolerances or allergies or medical conditions we have a a, a short list of trusted folk that that we can tap into we've got you know on our sort of um, on, on within the company, we've got Dr. Raj Jutley, who's one of the co-founders, who is a heart surgeon, but also therefore a you know a very credentialed medical doctor. We've worked and produced research papers with academics at universities. Who, if we get, I, I had a very interesting case come across my desk the other day with an athlete that collapsed in the heat. You know, a heat stroke sort of case, which was widely reported as dehydration related but we know that a lot of the time actually heat stroke isn't to do with dehydration it's to do with malfunction in the body's cooling system in the in the heat and an effort mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. so we um yeah we kind of we've been tackling that one and i've pulled in a group of experts at um for, for comment from a university in the us who specialize in heat stress and trauma because we know what we know but we also hopefully know what we don't know and then at some point but i try what i try and do like you is i try and introduce people and sit in on some of these conversations and just kind of build my mm-hmm. my knowledge base practically because what one thing i haven't been phenomenal at doing since i left university is continuing my formal professional development i've done a few courses and i've done mm-hmm. bits and pieces i know that i think you've done the same as well. i've done the precision nutrition mm-hmm. um, yeah i have done a couple i've done
0: I've done two of theirs and I'm doing the deep health one now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, which I've you know, and they're not just for clarity. They're not affiliated with us in any way. They're a completely separate business. They just happen to share a very similar name, but their courses, I think have provided a good grounding for me in general nutrition and that sort of thing. But outside of that, what I have done is spent a lot of time working with individual athletes, mm. problem cases in the real world. And whilst that doesn't necessarily give you a formal training, it's sort of, does prepare you for the kind of stuff that you see time and time again
0: i do i do think when you get to a certain level of knowledge um the the bits that you require to fill in those gaps are really niche areas and and finding a course that exactly fits your requirements is really difficult and so uh, to me my podcast is is my like my mba Uh, there's no certification at the end of it but each week, I get to speak to somebody who's an expert in something that I'm really interested in, and I know other people will be. And yeah. so that doesn't only improve my knowledge of certain things; it also builds my network of experts that I can reach out to um, yeah. to either help or point me in the right direction. I was going to come back to what you were saying about gathering the data from athletes who've been racing and finding out exactly what they've been consuming, what they, you know, what they felt was too much, what they felt wasn't enough. Because one of my I, I appreciate that laboratory-based research is important and it's controllable and it, it means that you can, there's less variables, but when you go into a lab to do a five-hour bike test to exhaustion, drinking a, a, you know, a placebo or the, the, the tested product, you know that it's just research. There's no nerves around that. There's none of the race day nerves that you get that mean you go into the toilet four times before you've left your apartment. There's most of that stuff that we're referring to for people doing long distance triathlon don't involve people doing a swim often in salt water or fresh water when you could be swallowing some of that and that could be so that's already in your stomach and then it and then it doesn't and it doesn't take into account that most people start to feel sick an hour or so into the run at least that's my ex, my experience is it it the gi distress mostly comes you know after after probably eight ten miles onto the run um so and I I sort of call that going dark so the research doesn't send people into that dark zone and so it isn't really a true picture of what's going to happen and so whilst you know 60 to 90 grams theoretically might be the target we're aiming for in reality most people haven't done the training and preparation to be able to absorb that amount and who knows what that really means in in certain situations you know comparing Bolton on a moderate summer day in the UK to Hawaii in October
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the the bringing the real world aspect in is obviously what case studies do. And case studies are sometimes I always think that case studies in and of themselves on their own are often quite interesting. They're often not not massively instructive for anyone accept the individual concerned because a case study on you is interesting to you and may lead to some relevance for you and there might be clues for other people but what we're hoping with our database of case studies over time is that the aggregate data will actually be seriously interesting because when you've got 100 data points from ironman races you can filter that by male athletes and by finish time and see a good amount of chunk of people that and say what's the average amount of carbohydrate that these people actually seem to be able to consume on the bike and on the run? And how does that relate to their performance? And that's the kind of longer term hope of what we can get out of the, the aggregate data, as well as all the, the, the individual learnings that go along on the way with collecting that data.
0: Yeah. Cause over time um, that big data, you know, that's growing will probably end up meaning that you've got more candidates with case studies than your average university research has. Take you a bit more time to gather it, but you, you can look at the um, uh, you can look at that Strava data they gathered about um, Nike vapor flies, yeah, and how they did find that when they'd got you know several thousand people who were recording the data on Strava and crunching the data from various races, there was actually a three or four percent improvement in running speed now that's not lab controlled and it's nothing like that but actually it's a huge sample size that you'd never get into a laboratory of people who are committed to running and running in races so it's 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 a real world it's sort of real world proof if you like i don't know whether you'd be able to put it in a peer-reviewed journal
1: but no i suspect i suspect you wouldn't for like ethical reasons for reasons of you know as in ethics board of um governance um also just the fact that there's variables in there that you're just not aware of and control you know anyone can put that they ran in a pair of vapor flies on Strava whether they did or didn't they might have accidentally put it or deliberately Mm -hmm. you know there's all there's all sorts of reasons but uh, but totally agree with your sentiment there that basically when you get the data gets big enough the a lot of the noise gets cancelled out and if you see some interesting trends you know we've we've seen a trend I think that Within a relatively small sample size at the moment, that male elite male triathletes who are competing in Ironman seem to be well into the 70 plus grams of carbs per hour on average, with a range that doesn't go much below 60s and goes up to 90s or even 100. So that's quite an interesting, that's quite an interesting initial sort of so data for me.
0: I read Herman Ponce's book, Burn. Don't you yeah. read it? And in there, he talks. He talks and questions this um, statement from Michael Phelps about consuming twelve thousand calories a day when he was when he was racing. And he said, regardless of whether he could or couldn't, he said it's highly likely that Michael Phelps and people like him have a an ability to consume more calories, which then enables them to get through more training and recover from it. So that in itself might be a self might be a self select a, a, a human selection for people who are going to become elite athletes. You know, I know you've got to have all of the other individual parts like the oxygen transport system, you know, and, and tolerance to this and that and the other, but equally, if you're unable to get the calories in and process them to keep that level of activity going, then that's going to remove you from that
1: elite group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anecdotally this is going to sound sound stupid it is it's kind of a funny example but you'll you'll know who I'm talking about here Elliot Chalifour who's a good mm-hmm. mate of yep. mine yeah and um, was a really really decent Ironman athlete from quite a young age I think in his very early 20s Elliot went sub nine I think it was sub nine or it was certainly close to it in Ironman Austria like top 20 overall sort of thing this is back in the late 90s even maybe or early 2000s and Elliot was like train. I trained with him a lot almost all the time for a number of years and he's an absolute beast and he could eat and I remember on a training camp in Sardinia where we went out on like day three we're doing a big big day and he's like eating 10 croissants for breakfast you know and honestly I, I remember at the time being partly like shocked and awed by the fact that he could do that but then sure enough he would be he would always outperform me i would be able to keep up certain elliott's wheel maybe even drop him early in the week and the training camp 10 days in i'm in the bin and he's still going strong Mm -hmm. and part of that was his like insane ability to eat he could just he could consume and process calories and keep going and he's a you know a, a stronger athlete for it i think
0: Yes, I think that's often overlooked, isn't it? When we're when we're thinking about how we can improve our fitnesses, what's what's our stomach like in terms of absorbing and digesting and processing those? Anyway, let's let's rewind a little bit. Um, you are a young company. When did
1: you start? Well, youngish. We're um, we're at secondary school now. Um, we we're about eleven.
0: We're about eleven. Okay, so not that long ago. Um. I'm interested in the backstory behind nutrition companies, right? So you if you go, Power Bar won one of the first that I remember, and Gatorade. Now, they're huge companies. I think Power Bar were owned by Nestle. Um, Gatorade are owned by, is it, is it Coca-Cola that owns them? PepsiCo, I believe. Pepsi, PepsiCo, right. So yeah. huge, huge companies. Massive resources themselves, but behind them huge laboratories, lots of people in white coats, crunching numbers, doing research, big laboratories where they can get people in. And then we've got yourselves and lots of other small companies. So I'm interested in you've got all of these new nutrition products. Now, uh, this is what was surprising to me. So let's talk about these. You've got you've got your little carb gel sachets, yeah. You've got your carb chews, yeah. You've got your smaller carb gel sachets and oh yep and you've got your carb drink mix plus you've got your original electrolyte effervescent tablets right now those effervescent tablets aren't the sort of thing that i think you can put together in your kitchen so you've come up with this idea yeah um how do you get started where do you go to get those things made and I've been to your place. It's effectively it's a distribution warehouse. You haven't got a lab there. You haven't got a factory making stuff. So, um, who does that? Does everybody get this stuff made in the same place? Are the specialists that you you would only know about by going on the dark nutrition web?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question. So it very much so depends. The starting point depends a lot on. What type of product you're trying to manufacture? Some products, like if we use the effervescent tablet as an example, is a, a technical product to manufacture. It requires specialist tooling. Specialist is actually quite, believe it or not, relatively dangerous to make effervescent tablets because if you imagine how an effervescent tablet fizzes and produces gas in a on its own, you imagine a vat of 500 kilograms of that <laughs> stuff would actually be right. more than explosive. So, you know, you. But but winding back a step before that, actually, I guess all of these things probably start on paper with a, a specification for like, what are we trying to achieve with the product. And for us, you know, our product lines are relatively simple and straightforward in that we are trying to replace electrolytes, primarily sodium, but some other electrolytes that you lose in sweat water which is what you add to the tablet or the powder to make a drink and in the case of the energy products carbohydrates so we're not looking for any there's not any particularly scary or sof- or sophisticated you know whiz bang ingredient in there what we're starting off with is specification say right okay well if we want to make a drink like our our best-selling effervescent electrolyte drink is this the 1500 ph 1500 we want to deliver 1500 milligrams of of sodium per litre of drink that that mixes up to. We want it to have a flavor profile like X, Y, Z. So with a product like that, you'd start with an on paper specification. And then that was designed by Dr. Jutley and myself, you know, getting our heads together and saying, well, what would we ideally want to replace when an athlete is sweating and Mm -hmm. and exercising? Then we actually move in that case, you move straight to finding a, a, a willing contract manufacturing partner who specializes in that sort of product. And then you enter into a negotiation with them for product development. And some people will charge you for product development. Um, Some people will, are willing to undertake a level of product development at their cost on the basis of, you know, potentially getting an order from you for the product. Um, It's, it's quite an interesting process because these are not public facing Mm -hmm. businesses very who have like really slick consumer websites and that you can't just often just google it and go and phone someone up and find out you have to kind of get into the industry a little bit and Mm -hmm. go to conferences and networks and obviously people like ourselves we're all relatively protective of our manufacturing contacts because they're hard they're hard won and we we work closely with them to produce our products and not other people's um, the other thing that we we have extremely high standards for who we'll work with in terms of quality control, so things like accreditations, um, ISO accreditations, BRC accreditations, food hygiene accreditations. Um, in terms of the um, working with athletes, we, we look for facilities and companies that are um, manufacturing to the standards of informed sport or the NSF, you know, right. Terms of anti-doping regulations. So you kind of go through this filtering system of trying to find people who will who are willing to go through product development and then into manufacture with you. And then and then you go through a round of, of product dev, which usually either looks like going to visit them if they're mixing and making things with you in a lab so that you can test and taste and try things on the spot to approve, or certainly during COVID time, it's a little bit more at arm's length. So you're often getting um you know you, you're receiving samples in the mail to feedback back on and that type of thing before you then move on to sort of building things for production so for a, for a te- for a product like a an FFS and tablet that would be the sort of basic process you'd go through and it can be quite time consuming you know to to do that from from end to end to get a product that you're totally happy with then so from yeah. so from,
0: from memory then um i met you at your um facility your office in probably end of last summer and in yep. that in that period of covid you decided that you're going to start doing carbohydrate products yep. and you hadn't just got the idea together you'd actually got some samples that you gave me to try yep. and just recently you've been um producing and manufacturing these haven't you so that, that's you've you've got you've got that off the ground and up to speed in two years which seems given what you've just said seems like uh, quite a quite a fast turnaround
1: the the carb products are an interesting one because they they are in inverted commas perhaps depending how you're looking at a little bit easier to develop so unlike the effervescent tablets which require really specialist manufacture, the gels ultimately an energy gel requires specialist manufacture ultimately but an energy gel development can start in your home kitchen and that's where ours started so (laughs) um mel who's one of the the ladies who works with us in athlete support customer service is a very active endurance athlete is a phenomenal baker and cook and has a working knowledge of sports nutrition and all sorts of stuff and um mel was fantastic in terms of helping us to sort of start to research and take ideas about how we would make our own energy gel so we were we again started off with a specification on paper then we moved to buying raw ingredients mixing them up in the kitchen making samples, taking them out on runs with us, taking them out on bike rides, you know, like this is, I'm talking literally in like Ziploc bags or using spoons to eat them, <laughs> just to try and see if you can get close to what you imagine you're looking for. And so you can get really, really hands-on with that process. And that's the way we do it. And then then what we'll do is we'll take a basic recipe and a, and a process to someone who can make it at, at scale and then sort of unpackage it and sort of start to work with them in order to industrialize the process so that we could produce it in in the, the kind of amounts that you need to to make it viable as a business we're not going to make energy gels in the bath at home you know by hand for for all the athletes we work with so um you know that that process is way is way more hands on now what i would say is that i'm not and certainly not pointing fingers here that's not the point of this but that's not necessarily the process that every brand would go through there are a lot of brands that pop up who literally go to a a white label manufacturer who does an off-the-shelf energy gel and says i want a cherry one a lemon one and a you know a a mango one and i want my packaging to look like this and they start banging them out because they've got a recipe sat there and tooling and all -hmm. the rest we we tend to be a little bit more hands-on with our products where we can in order to really create something which is a little bit more unique interesting to us we feel a bit more ownership of it we also hopefully get a higher performing and a more unique product off the back of that process
0: there's always a lot of talk about bike frames and how you know everybody gets the, the carbon bike frames made in china and there's only one or two factories that are doing them and sometimes if you haven't got a big budget you can see that um there's two or three frames on the market that look very similar to yours because they probably come out of the same press so is that the same in um it with nutrition and the, the companies that make it for you did just everybody go to one or two labs or are there quite a lot of these places out there so you've each got your own protected source as you called it
1: yeah, I would say there's a lot. There's there's a lot of options for different types of specialist products. Like we we we're aware of some of some potential, you know, what you'd call competitor or similar products that are made in similar facilities. We 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 own some of the IP around our own recipes and processes, so we 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 have a a, a bit more ownership of our products than other people than some other people might. And then other people will do the same as us. They might be using similar producers. But it's relatively well, it's relatively well spread because quite often, for example, I think people would imagine that the type of facility that does energy gels could only do energy gels. But actually a lot of the technology that's in that factory is very suitable for putting anything at all into a single stick pack sachet. So you might get, you know, I'm Making things up here off the top of my head, but you might get face creams being made there and put into a a pack that looks not unlike a, a you know you know the kind of samples that you get at a trade show or whatever. Or it might be I've definitely seen at another another facility like um grease. You know when you buy a set of bike pedals and sometimes you get a tiny little thing of grease that comes in a thing with it. That will be done in a similar way in inverted commas to your energy gel because a lot of the technology is just sort of mixing something in a vat. And then squirting it into a, a packet which is heat sealed. So I'm not saying that they would make the same. You know, they were not going to make nutritional products on the same line that they're packing <laughs> engine oils with. That is definitely not the case. <laughs> but <laughs> if you understand what I'm what I'm getting at, is that yeah. these places will often do all yeah. sorts of all sorts of different things. Um, and then and then there are some of the bigger players in our industry, like you've mentioned, some of the huge companies like the power bars and the net who are owned by nestle or whatever that that i would imagine now use either if not their wholly their own facilities shared facilities that make products for them and their brand their own brands and they'll consolidate things like how those big companies work they save money by buying bulk ingredients and those kind of things which get used across multiple different products and Mm -hmm. all shared resources basically um, and then you'll find there are some middle, more middle ground companies, the kind of science and sports or whatever, who own a lot of their own manufacturing, and do, you know they own the they they have their own facility, you know, as well. So you've got you've got everything from companies that are purely kind of a fictitious brand, who don't even get involved in product R and D. They literally slap a sticker on an existing product, mm. free to you know, people who R&D their products but outsource the manufacture to manufacture their own, to next step being manufacture their own. So I think it's a mixture of them all.
0: I can't have been alone here i'm sure some of the listeners are thinking thank goodness that they do separate those engine oils from uh, face <laughs> creams or and from energy gels the uh, oh, no, the I, disaster if there was a mix-up could be hilarious yeah. and uh and catastrophic catastrophic yeah
1: yeah i mean the what i will say is that to you know not, not just to give people reassurance but to give an insight is that the factories for instance the ones that we work with the level of cleanliness that you go through to even access the facility for example to get on the production line you'll quite often have to go through kind of clean rooms you have to change all of your clothing you have to put paper suits on hair nets and there's v- lots of hand sanitizer. There's there's very very rigorous you walk into these places and they're far more like a um, far more like a laboratory than a mm. food kitchen do you know what i mean there's there's a huge we're we're always always impressed when we've been to to go and look at sites and visit these people it's always a big part of the tick list for us is that that there's in, insanely high levels of um uh, sort of diligence with regards to making sure that products are clean safe what goes into them i mean that's a whole nother topic actually around ingredient chain of custody and and checking what's in the products all of our products and this is not this is um, not unique but it's it's certainly not the case across the board in our industries every single product that we produce wherever it's produced is sent to an independent lab afterwards for analysis so we check that what's on the ingredients list is mm-hmm. listed, is is in the is in it that the active ingredients are what they should be and that it complies as as best as it can with the anti-doping regulations so they, it goes to an independent lab in the uk or in the us depending on where we're manufacturing the the product to have that happen and that's a really important point for athletes to be aware of is that the supplement industry is not that rigorous across the board you know so it is good to look for the informed sport accreditation or batch testing it's good to look for nsf certified for sport for that reason because it, it implies a, a level of due diligence on the part of the people that have made it
0: Do you do any consumer taste testing then? When you go out, you might go out with some of your riding mates and say, hey, look, we've got some of these gels now. These are the ones we've been uh, thinking about getting um, manufactured. What do you think? And just give them some to try and uh, take their feedback.
1: Well, we're an active bunch in the office, as you know. So the first line of testing is always people in the office. Then we go out to our ambassadors and, and athletes and friends and family and get more feedback. And it leads to relatively quick iteration for us you know so
0: mm.
1: people who've shopped with our gels will be aware that very quickly we iterated on two fronts we we've refined the process the gel, one of the early gels that we made was too loose and runny it wasn't a gel it was more like a syrup and it was mm. the right ingredients but the process wasn't quite nailed down to mm. make it gel properly so we had to iterate through that and then we also had a packaging iteration that we came through where one of our sets to packaging was just not it was just very difficult to open and the retainer tab on the gel wasn't holding on very well. So Mm. we iterated there. And so listening to feedback and trying to make tweaks as products go live is, is all part of the process.
0: Uh, You mentioned about um, manufacturing being, I know you've now doing some stuff in the U S do you have different manufacturing plants in Europe and UK and the U S or do you have one and then you export it to those countries?
1: Oh, it's a real mixture we have we use different places for different products and, and different and different places for the same products in different markets so it's a relatively it's a relatively complex setup but it, it gives us two things it gives us a level of redundancy if one place goes offline or for it or can't produce on a timeline for any reason mm. and also Um, it's obviously better environmentally and cost-wise in terms of reducing shipping miles for products. If you can make them in the country where they're intended for sale, that has all sorts of knock-on benefits. So we try to do that where we can.
0: And what about legal requirements? Because I guess that's a bit of a minefield for you, and that'll change depending on what continent you're on.
1: Yes, it, it does, and and sort of labelling is a real is a real interesting one. There's lots of different regulations in different countries, and it's it's hard to keep up to speed on that. We often use consultants, external consultants, to help us help our team mm. to try and get that right. Um, the on the legal side with foodstuffs being safe and appropriate for human consumption and that sort of thing. There's the the guidelines, you know, the the if you work with reputable manufacturers, manufacturers you they won't let you and you know you we they won't let you put combination ingredients or ingredients in quantities that are not regarded as generally regarded as safe so okay with sports nutrition in in general i'm not and that's probably too much of a blanket term but i would say with things like energy gels and electrolyte drinks and stuff the ingredients are relatively simple they're kind of you would probably have all of the ingredients in one way, shape, or form that are in our energy gels or tablets in your kitchen cupboards. You know, if you've got a reasonable selection of other products or bits and pieces, so there's nothing wild and crazy in these. It's sports nutrition, you know. When you boil it down, is is often electrolytes and carbohydrates. Occasionally, there are you know caffeine. Sometimes those sort of things, but mm. often the um, you know the the manufacturing standards mean that things. Clearly you know there have been cases where things slip through the net but they tend to be more in they tend to be produced in places without with a, with less rigorous checks and standards and there might be cases of contamination as opposed to you know someone out and out designing a, a supplement that just isn't safe even on paper.
0: Okay, so that's that's an important thing just to confirm then for for people listening is that the fact that you have the informed sport logo, and certificate printed on your products means that these have all been tested. That there's generally no contamination. That uh, particularly if you're the level of athlete where getting tested randomly or, or um, you know by appointment is a possibility, then it's important for you to know about the efficacy of the product that you're taking. We've all can probably remember examples of people who've had a um, an adverse test and saying, "Well, you know, it was it was it was the, it was the uh, tainted supplements." It wasn't me. Never is them. But I mean, I'm sure that in certain cases, it probably was tainted supplements.
1: But it, but it may have been, and you know, it may have been contamination, or it may have been inadvertently taking something that they, um, that they didn't,
0: you hmm. know,
1: they didn't realise was on a ban list. There's lots of things, but ultimately, that kind of burden of of um, responsibility always lands on the athlete's shoulders. And what we offer is, is that if all of our products are either informed sport or NSF certified or, or they're informed sport batch tested. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that any of our products, if, if someone purchases them, they can, they can receive a a batch testing certificate and an informed sports, sports certificate or NSF certificate with it if they need one. So you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a policy that we've had in place from day one because we understood that we were always going to be selling and providing products to elite athletes. And, you know, in the Informed Sport system in particular, you know, is based that. well, they are global, but they're based out of the UK. What they'll do as well as testing batch samples that we send them from a production run, they actually mystery shop your products mm-hmm. in, the, in the wild. So they'll actually buy products from our website under a pseudonym they get shipped out to them they then they test them blind and then send us the results as well which is another level of reassurance to athletes because it effectively randomizes the sampling process from your inventory Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. really useful
0: okay so i think i think i understand the whole development and sort of um um production of products now um let's say i'm a customer let's say i'm listening to this podcast and i'm thinking yeah, i quite like andy sounds like he's got his head screwed on right and this is a nice product i'm going to give it a try i'm going to i'm going to um i'm going to contact them first and find out what i should be trying so we'll we'll we will put that link in the show notes i presume you're still offering that are you where people can ring up for that 15 minute consultation with yeah. one of the team yeah so that they can um, it's not like just going onto the website and looking through the list of products available and sort of randomly choosing. You could actually have a bit more of an idea if you, if you make the effort to speak with one of the precision fuel and hydration team. Uh, and then what happens? Tell us about the, tell us about fulfillment and how you, and how you manage to make that happen as if by magic, because that's what it seems to be a lot of the time um, yeah. all over the world from this actually what what might seem like a global organization but actually it's a, it's quite a small tight-knit organization
1: it is we we do things a bit differently to a lot of companies so people most people will obviously be familiar with Amazon and the way they work and what they have is huge distribution centers all over the place and when you place an order their clever computer algorithms route your order to whichever would be the closest warehouse with your Products in stock, they consolidate them and where they can, and they ship them out to you. Well, we obviously have slightly smaller inventory to worry about than Amazon. Um, it's, it's growing, but it's not quite at their levels yet. And they, what what we do is we have um, regional warehouses. We have one in the UK. We have one in Canada in, on, on the west coast in Canada. Now we have two in America, one on the east coast and one on the west coast. We have one in um, on the gold coast in Australia. And we also now have one in Germany. Um, there are a variety like the some of those facilities are leased and operated by us. Um, some of them are th- uh, what you call third party logistics um, facilities, where they will ship either their own products and other people's, or they'll just be a provider of third party distribution services. And then what the way the way we do things is that the, our website functions well, we have it looks obviously to you when you visit it from the UK, it looks like a UK website. And we also have websites which accept other currencies. So if you were to visit us from the U S you would visit our U S website. And we have a US subsidiary company that, so we can take U S dollars and, and provide local shipping and all that sort of stuff. So we try to localize it as much as possible to keep it efficient for, for people and for us. So we'll, produce our products bulk ship them to relevant warehouses and then it's a case of when when someone places an order there is so we've got software algorithms that route their order to the best place to ship it from based on their geography and um you know that keep helps to keep everything super efficient from the customer because i know that it was a great example when you wanted some products the other day and we were able to you know in in the uk we use um dpd for a lot of our larger shipments and when you placed an order that happened to be just before four o'clock in the afternoon which is around the time our dpd lovely dpd guy picks up and he was able to pick that up 10 minutes after you placed the order it was on a van and it arrived with you at eight o'clock the next morning and that's about you know that's that's about as good as it gets in terms of fulfillment timelines obviously that was highly optimized hold on
0: I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna um blow Andy's trumpet here if that doesn't sound uh, (laughs) euphemistic I I spoke to Andy he was on the west coast of America at the time in in Oregon weren't you at that uh, your Portland warehouse and uh, Andy said to me oh you should try some of this stuff out before we have the podcast I'll get it sorted for you so this was 10 to 4 uh, 10 to 4 my time whatever it would have been 10 to 8 his time and so then he was able to process that from five thousand miles away, so there was a little bit extra work. Um, but with with the beauty of uh, electronic communications these days, it didn't it didn't take that long. But still, um, it was uh, it was a little bit more contrived than just going to the website and ordering it. But I was impressed that it arrived at eight o'clock the next morning. Yeah, that was no, good. it's less, good. To less to Twelve to be, hours.
1: Yeah, good to be able to do that. And I've got at this point give a shout out to Johnny, my business partner, and Sam in particular, who are the and Dom and Ron in our warehouse, who are the guys that really make that. Fulfillment magic happen because we've been lucky that our business has grown very steadily over the last four or five years. Which then it's a bit like increasing the load on your training program. You know, it kind of allows you to adapt and and become more resilient as you go. And if we were shipping the sort of volumes, if you'd take if you took us back five years and then dumped the volume of orders that we've had today alone on our desk, it would have completely broken our systems and thrown us into a flap. And we still as growth is great as a business it's what you strive for but it's also puts your business under pressure and so the guys are dealing with a constant amount of pressure at the moment because we're ramping up into the spring and summer where everything's growing we're coming out of covid so people are back out doing things and it's really that they're sort of like hard work and thinking ahead logistics is one of those things where you kind of don't notice it when it goes when it's all running smoothly but you really do when it breaks and so they get a lot of flack and not a lot of credit so this is perhaps an opportunity to give them some public credit for what they do
0: there's a lot of companies that have gone by the wayside that have had great products but have just grown too quickly and and have just been unable to fulfill that you know they've had to um push the finance bubble a little bit and it's just got too much hasn't it so
1: um steady
0: like like with endurance training and building up steady and slow wins the day nearly all the time
1: absolutely i mean catastrophic success is a phrase that you know i've heard thrown around and i can i can sort of imagine what that might feel like if if someone does 10 times your order volume very quickly it would be a bit like doing 10 times your training volume it's it's yeah it's
0: It's only got one ending hasn't it really and it's not (laughs) good um you you mentioned briefly about environmental footprint i think uh we're all concerned about that these days you know global warming's pretty much the top of the headlines nearly all the time and um a lot of consumers now are getting a little bit more choosy about who they deal with so um what about your your company values i know educating people's huge but what about your values in terms of your footprint on the global yeah of, uh, no, pollution thing
1: i would i would say in the last three or four years sustainability and environmental concerns have definitely been a much hotter topic of conversation in general and certainly they have been in our office. We're in the process actually at the moment of starting to develop actually a public facing sustainability policy. We've we've taken our time doing that because we've been very put off by a lot of companies in our space doing what we what gets colloquially termed like greenwashing in terms mm. of making very bold statements about what they're doing or very grandiose statements that don't really having it have so much of an impact we've all we've tried to the the honest thing is that when you're making dis uh, foodstuffs in disposable packaging that keeps the foodstuffs in in good shape for in harsh environments you know like a harsh environment is an energy jail having to live in your back of your cycling pocket on the queen k highway in kona <laughs> having been shipped there from you know europe you know, in your bike box and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's not it's not an easy task to keep that gel in good nick. So you need some pretty strong barriers to the environment to do that.
0: But, but equally, that same gel might have to uh, exist in somebody else's inside pocket on a dita rod in Alaska, where the temperature is sub-zero.
1: Yeah, so you need you need you know strong barriers for that, and those fab, those those materials aren't always very easy to recycle or to make out of recyclable materials. So the the industry in general needs to and we apply as much upward pressure as we can to the, the people that make these, these materials for our packaging to, to explore recyclable options. One example is this year we moved to using single skin plastic recyclable pouches for our energy drinks because previously where we would have used laminates, which are, which are obviously different layers of fabric stuck together, um that's they're notoriously difficult to recycle because they're not one material these single skin packages you can put in most curbside recycling and get them recycled so we've moved towards those another big area is in in terms of just general shipping yeah um yeah energy gel pouches they're they're sort of they're still in laminates at the moment so energy gel pouches are still pretty difficult to recycle but we are told that there's advances being made there in terms of single skin materials and maybe even biodegradable materials in time but you know being honest with you that's not that's not a we we try to influence that with upward pressure but that's not we're not going to go out we're not a company who is in a position to go out and invent a new packaging for this so what we will do though and what we have been doing and where a lot of companies will hopefully be doing the same is aligning our goals around you know cost saving for shipping for example if you can get more energy gels into a box and then more of those boxes onto a pallet then you can ship less pallets which takes up less space uses less fuel and reduces your carbon footprint it also as a commercial business, saves you money because you pay for less pallets to be shipped. So we, for all of those reasons, the logistics guys spend a lot of time optimising our shipments in order that we don't do anything wastefully. And I would I would actually argue that we're a business that's grown organically from day one. We've taken no external investment into the business and we've done a lot with very little. And what that does teach you is to be extremely frugal about everything that you do. And overall, there's an impact that has in terms of your environmental footprint, I would describe as, as being almost the exact opposite of a wasteful business. You know, we are insanely drilled on efficiency and economy. And, and I think that That's something which you know we're we're working into our policy. Whereas, whereas a lot of businesses will bang on about the fact that they have cycle to work scheme and this and that and yeah, I mean we have all of those things. The 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 guys here on the cycle to work scheme, if they want to get a bike to to ride to the office and that. But for me, they're kind of yeah, the more visible, grandiose gestures that are less impactful than what you might necessarily do with all your freight forwarding and that and that sort of stuff. So. We're very conscious about it. We another example in the last twelve months would be that we've we've had we've signed some paperwork with the people who make our water bottles so that they don't now ship them in wrapped in plastic because they said that the it would run the risk of the graphics rubbing off in transit. We tested it. We said no, it won't. And then we stopped doing it, and it's been totally fine. And then we've been able to reduce an absolute ton of plastic with the mm-hmm. water bottles because they no longer need to come wrapped in needless cellophane so all of those sort of things they're not sort of big splashy um you know save the planet initiatives but what they are is they're hopefully practical <laughs> in the right direction
0: so it's a bit like instagram training sessions isn't it that everybody wants to talk about versus yeah. the, li- the little things that you do every day like going to bed a bit earlier and eating the right things um it's just the same you know i, I think that uh, you know on a on a on a consumer basis or an individual basis, we're all looking at big companies to do this and that and the other with their global, um, you know, the eco policies. But if we all just turn the lights out a bit more, turned our Wi-Fi off at night and walked a little bit more for those short journeys, though, though uh, collectively, those would probably make a, b- a bigger impact than um, the big headline stuff. Um, yeah. so we've, all, we've all got to do a bit. And, and sometimes those small little things that you do um, are just as effective, but perhaps not quite as noteworthy.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's where we've been wrestling over the last couple of years. And we've had some interesting conversations with people in in the, suspense, the sustainability space who've actually been quite encouraging to us to say what you're doing is is pretty good. And what you probably now need to do is, is kind of man up, basically, and get involved in the conversation as opposed to just doing these things quietly, because otherwise the perception is you're not doing anything which is then a poor public perception. And I can understand that and I think that's why we've we've made moves to start to you know to kind of push in that direction. But we're definitely going to err away from this like this the greenwashing stuff like you say the Instagram version of sustainability does make me a little bit angry sometimes if I spend too much time looking at it. But
0: recyclable t-shirts, lovely t-shirts in bamboo or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They you can get you you can get your headline grabbing yeah, sustainability bits. Yeah. yeah sort of find them on Instagram. <laughs> um,
0: you mentioned ambassadors being a part of your testing program. I I have a few friends who have little businesses in the sort of manufacturing, you know. Um, Ray Skinner, one of them that make um kit and clothing. And you know, um, I'm a new Dave from Planet X, and everybody, including you, no doubt, gets emails all the time from people saying, Oh. Can I be a sponsored athlete? Can I be an ambassador? Thinking that that automatically gives them free, free stuff, free kit that they're going to be able to use. And that's going to save them a few quid. And, oh, and in return, I'll put your name on my um, on my kit and uh, and I'll put a space on my website for you. And there'll be a little place for you on my disc wheel at the back. Yeah. Okay. Um and of course, in the end, 90 percent those people don't give you anything meaningful back anyway. You know who looks at anybody's website on the partners page? Who really looks at looks at the nutrition support on any athlete's uh, kit unless it's somebody winning the Olympics. So, um, how do you approach that whole um, thing about sponsored athletes and ambassadors? And and what do you ex- for, for those people who think I'd like to be part of that? What do you expect from them and what do you give them?
1: Yeah, we, we have like most companies, we have sort of different tiers of ambassador programs. So some people get some discounts on products from us and maybe some merch to wear to represent the brand and just raise brand awareness. That would be our entry-level tier of ambassadors. We we have um a tier of people who would we would support with free products and with free and with help and advice, as we would with any of our customers in order to to improve help improve their performances through education and use use of our products really so what that boils down to is helping people with their fueling and hydration strategies for events and debriefs and stuff and then we have a small thin tier at the top where these are athletes that we that are fully professional that we recognize we um, it's it's both valuable and the right thing as a commercial company to do to pay these people a retainer and performance bonuses as well as supplying them with product and advice and help to to perform at their best. And at that level, we also expect a lot more kind of formal things in return, which would include, for example, if we're doing feedback on races with these athletes you'll see a lot of their names in our case studies database because as well as it being primarily a service to them to help them improve and iterate we have in their contracts that it is useful for us to be able to publish that that data in the public domain to help other people mm. so we just we just try to to figure out and all of the connections that we have with athletes these days we like to be very authentic so we like people that have used the products for a while or have had they people often move through the tiers with us i would say is the way to look at it rather than x or y agent comes knocking on the door or athlete and says hey i really like your stuff um can you sponsor me by the way that would be x amount of thousands and and then you actually look back and you go well we've never seen an order from you through our website and don't know where you would have got the products to try and is this just a kind of a money Mm -hmm. grab and you know i think we have a really really lovely bunch of athletes that we work with who see tremendous value in working with abby and emily and chris and the rest of the sports science team on improving their performance Mm -hmm. and I, i would like to think that we have a closer and more proactive working relationship with most of the ambassadors that we do, um, that we do have on the, on the team because of that, that genuine connection where we actually try and help them improve and perform quite often. I think it's a little bit taken aback by how communicative we are with them at first, but once they get a feel for what the benefit that brings to them, it, it, it perpetuates, you know, and it gets, it gets better. And I would like, I'd, I'd like to think that's, you know, that's sort of the other thing that that does, of course, for the sports science team and for myself is it, it is very, very educational for us in reverse, because we really get to understand what top athletes are doing with their hydration and fueling. We, we get to chat with them pre and post race and both professionally from a curiosity and knowledge point of view that's interesting and also there's nothing quite like you've you've you know raced a lot yourself I've raced a lot being involved with athletes and being and hopefully being able to positively influence the outcome of their performances in a small way I'm really excited about going to St George for the Ironman World Championships because we've got a house there with a number of pro athletes that are staying that that we're helping with and we're not there to tread on toes or get in their way but I'm excited to be there to help with any last minute quiz and then see them do what they do best on race day you know that's going to be really gratifying I think so
0: yes yeah. some, yes my, my experience of being around athletes is sometimes the things that you pick up in the when, when you're just sitting you could be sitting having breakfast or having a cup of coffee and just watching the way people conduct their lives gives you as much of a clue about their nutrition and the race performance as, as actually what they're putting in their mouth
1: yeah yeah I would, I would highlight, for example, for us, the evolution of um, Leon Chevalier as an athlete in the last 12 months. He's stepped up to long-distance racing from short-course stuff, done exceptionally well, come through really fast. He's learned a lot on the nutrition and hydration side, and I'm sure he'd have done fantastically well without our input, but maybe we've a- shortcut his process to him getting Mm. really good and dialed at at that part of his race and he's now straight on the the day before a race he's in with us to check on his plan make sure everything's set as it should be the day after the race he's booked in for a debrief call with the team to record the results and iterate from there and it's really nice to be like close to to that that journey with someone like him and it's it is you you know again to give a shout out to the team here Emily our sports science intern Abby head of sports science you know they're they're the people on the phones to these athletes the day after races making that stuff happen and building relationships with them that that kind of hopefully over time just help them get there, get where they want to be going.
0: So you and Chris have been good enough to give our listeners a 15% discount code so if you if you are interested please go to the show notes we'll make sure it's well signposted and you can um, get that 15% off your first order. Um, for those of you listening, what Andy's just mentioned about building relationships and and getting on with people is the reason that, um, you know, Andy and I are going to be working together a bit more in the future. I've known Andy for a long time. We've had a beer together. We've been swimming together. We, we've spoken a lot. And I've tried Andy's products. So, and for me, it goes more than just whether the product tastes good. It's about, it's about getting on with the people you work with and building a relationship so that you can, you you know, you can have this friendly cordial relationship that extends beyond business. I'm not saying I'm going to be Andy's godfather to any of his kids or be first on his list for his barbecue parties, but it's not about that. It's having good relationships. And I, I, get emailed all the time from nutrition companies and bike companies asking if we'd like to do this and do that and to be honest I'm not interested because most of them I don't know them and in the same way that people write to you Andy and say oh yeah um can you sponsor me you know I love your product, and they've 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 read about you in in 220 magazine um I'm not saying that's the same for me but people want to work with you just because they've been through a list of people who do podcasts or triathlon coaches and they're just going through the list until they find some people so Long may your success and growth, your slow growth, continue, Andy. Yeah. Um, I'm looking. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'd wish for you to be the headline nutrition sponsor at, um, at the Ironman World Championships because actually I think that uh, comes with an awful lot of problems from from uh, <laughs> some of the people I've chatted to. But at least good luck with um, PTO and everything that's going on there, and uh, we'll see you out on the course somewhere.
1: Yeah, no, thank, thanks for all the kind words and the invite back, Simon. And we definitely look forward to doing more with you and your, your squad going forward because hopefully it'll be, a, yeah, it'll continue to be a good partnership.
0: Mm, enjoy St. George. I've not been there. Um, That'll, that'll be on the next uh, set of uh, bucket lists.
1: Yeah, very excited we'll, for that. We'll, we'll be seeing you in Kona as well uh some there will definitely be i would imagine there'll be people from the team in kona whether i'll go or not myself it's a it's a long way to go with two two small kids and uh you know my wife working full-time but we'll see i'd love to go i reckon i'll go within the next three years let's put it that way maybe not this year
0: but here's here's the thing you need to get to the thank god i'm not racing party that bob babbitt holds yeah and you need to supply everybody there in the goodie bag with a um sachets or tubes of hangover cure you can relabel yeah. them as hangover cure <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> so, that, so that so that everybody can rate make the race start <gasps> it, at six o'clock the next morning
1: yeah yeah good tip
0: all right take care andy thanks very much again
1: thanks mate bye
0: thank you to andy for being a guest on this week's high performance human triathlon podcast As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below, including the 15% discount code for your first order from Precision Fuel and Hydration. To make sure you don't miss any episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. If you've been listening for a while and you'd like specific guidance and structure for your training, then please think about joining my Swap community, where we have training plans for all types of endurance events, as well as monthly live workshops, diving deep on specific subjects, and we also have a thriving Facebook community of like-minded individuals. You can also find a link for this in the show notes below. Right, that's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you on the next episode.